Go ahead and grab your Bibles and make your way to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 16 this morning, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 12. Uh, We're returning to our series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. Uh, If you're visiting with us or uh, haven't been when we've been a part of this series, what we're doing is we're taking all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're trying to go through them all as chronologically as possible by bringing them together when there are certain passages and other Gospels um, and, and just getting the full image and the full beauty of Jesus' ministry, his message, the purpose of it all, and what he was trying to uh, teach his disciples and teach other people and to teach us through the Gospels. As you can see, this particular event that we're looking at this morning is also found in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8, verses 11 through 21, and our focus this morning is danger, danger, danger. Um, When I was a kid, uh, during the summers, there was a show I really liked to watch, and I I can't figure out why I liked it. Well, I have some idea why I liked it. Uh, The show was called Lost in Space. Anybody remember that show, Lost in Space? And... um, I used to love that show. It's actually based upon the Swiss family Robinsons, and so it takes a little uh, tweak to it in that it's the Robinson family that gets lost in space. And I mean, it's kind of easy to figure that's what's going to happen. And so they get stuck on this planet. And um, I, I, I think I was drawn to it because the whole family were astronauts. Even the little kid, the boy, he was an astronaut too. And so he got lost in space and he has this robot that is attached to him, that's like follows him around. Does anybody know the catchphrase of the robot? Danger Will Robinson, danger Will Robinson. Yeah, and so uh, and I, I went back and watched it. I guess a lot of people have liked it because they've, they've made a movie from it. They've actually rebooted it on one of the streaming services. Um, but I went back and watched it. And if you're a huge fan of Lost in Space, just... Close your ears for a second. It was really bad acting. <laughs> but it, 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 at the time, it was just like, whoa, this is such a cool show. And I bring this up because in our passage, there are three groups of people that we're going to see who are a lot like the robot that they're going to need some reprogramming. And they aren't the ones that are shouting out, danger, danger, danger. But Jesus is shouting out, danger, danger, danger to them. He's telling them to be aware, to be awake to watch out. So let's walk through this and we'll see the implications and the applications of what the word of the Lord says. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16 of Matthew, when the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky's red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky's red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Verse 5. When disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discussing among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you failed to understand 
that I did not speak about bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's pray together before we get into this. Father, you are a great and mighty God. You are worthy of our praise. You are holy, holy, holy. You are a God of grace and mercy, a God who is faithful even when we are unfaithful to you. Come before you asking for your grace and mercy and your forgiveness for those times that we've lived outside of your will. We've been disobedient. Father, in this time, this place we open your word, I pray your spirit would come upon us, that it would speak to every single heart in this room, that it would not be my words, but it would be your words, so just move me aside. Let me just be an instrument of your righteousness, Lord, I completely submit to your will. And I pray that everyone in this place would submit to your will as well because, Lord, we know you love us and you are for us, not against us. We thank you for the word that we're going to walk through this morning and the dangers it brings to our attention that we must be aware of. So guide and lead us, be our shepherd. I pray your kingdom and will will be done not only in this room but back in children's church. That hearts would hear your word and it would take root. We love you, we praise you, we pray all in the name of Jesus, amen. Now since we're jumping back into the series, we need to get a little more context, a little more background on what is beginning to take place. In Matthew and Mark, they both record that Jesus did a predominantly Gentile territory tour. Uh, You can find that in chapter 15 of Matthew, the previous chapter, you can find it in chapter 7 and 8 of the Gospel of Mark. I bring this up because Jesus originally left the Jewish area because the Pharisees brought an issue to him about ceremonial cleansing, uh, particularly hand washing. And so he and his disciples get on a boat and they travel across the Sea of Galilee. They come into these predominantly Gentile areas where we find a, a vast difference on how people responded to him. These people welcomed Jesus in. They sought after him. They never had to deal with any pushbacks in this area except for the disciples themselves, which Jesus used as a teaching lesson. The last event dealt with the feeding of the 4,000, which you can look at the end of the chapter of 15, in which 4,000 people in this predominantly Gentile area stayed with Jesus for three days to hear his teaching, to have healings come about. They were amazed with him. And so Jesus comes back to this Jewish area where the Jewish people are, and we can know that because that's where the Pharisees and Sadducees would be. They wouldn't go to Gentile areas. They wouldn't go to Samaria. They would stay with the the Jewish people because they believed other people would make them unclean. And as soon as he arrived, we read there in verse 1 that he's bombarded by these two groups of people. In Matthew's Gospel, as you read through it, these groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, these are the antagonists toward Jesus and his ministry. Yet for some reason, as we read through the Gospels, we see that these groups of people continuously are drawn to him. Matthew tells us they came with the intention to test Jesus. Mark adds they didn't just come to test him, but they wanted to come to argue with him. And don't we just love people like that in our life? The only reason they come to find us is to start an argument. Uh, i got a nephew like that. <laughs> It's not enjoyable. You can't get a word in. You can't be right. You're always wrong. Even if you are right, they'll try to bring up an argument that you're wrong. This is what the Pharisees 
and Sadducees are coming. They're coming to test Jesus. They're coming to argue with him. That word test is the same Greek word used for when Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness after he fasted for 40 days and he tempted him. It's the exact same Greek word. And so what Matthew's led to do by the Spirit is to show that these groups of people have the same nature as the enemy. They are opposed to what Jesus is doing. Even though they carried religious titles, they had the same characteristics of what Satan did. They wanted to test him. And the test was asking Jesus to produce a sign from heaven. Meaning is they wanted Jesus to prove his authority by proclaiming a convincing manifestation of his power. This encounter seems familiar because an encounter like this happened already in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42, the same group of people came to Jesus to test him, to try to get him to put on a show. And Jesus' response there is very similar to the way he responds here. What he says in verse 2 must have been something very familiar with this culture when he kind of gives this little weather lesson. He uses common knowledge about the weather and the clouds because he's trying to let these Pharisees and Sadducees know that they are dull. They are dull men. They can interpret the weather, but they cannot interpret the signs of the times. The meaning is they couldn't read, they couldn't grasp, they couldn't understand what was happening right before their eyes in Jesus Christ. What Jesus pointed to is they had already experienced some of his miracles. They've already seen him cast out demons. They had seen him heal people. They had heard his teachings and his explanation of Scripture, yet they weren't convinced. They wanted more. And this is the lesson of our first danger, the danger of never enough. There are some people who are tempted to believe that God has to do more than what he's already done. That he has to bless us financially. That he has to make sure we never get sick. He has to make sure the car never breaks down or an appliance at the house never breaks down. Or that we have the best toys and things that the world can offer. There are some people who believe that God has to continue to prove himself as being God. It's a mindset that salvation is great. Is there something more? There's got to be something else. And so what people end up doing is they seek after miracles. They seek after healings. They want to go hear the charismatic preacher or the charismatic teacher. They want to go to a worship where they can experience entertainment. They basically look to God and say, well, what have you done for me lately? Jesus points out here in verse 4, he's not going to play the religious leader's game. The only sign that they're going to receive will be the sign of Jonah. It's the same response that he gave to them back in Matthew chapter 12, and he elaborates on it a little bit more in verse 40 of chapter 12. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So when Jesus points to Jonah, he's telling these men, the sign that you are seeking is coming. And he's pointing to his crucifixion and his resurrection. But here's the thing. These men, not all of them, are going to believe it. They're actually going to remain opposed to it. For us, the lesson is the only proof that sign we need from God is the source of our salvation. It's found through the crucified and resurrected Christ. 
If God does nothing else for us but save us, forgive us, and give us eternal life, that should be enough. Because it's something we do not deserve. But we read through Scripture, God didn't just stop there. When we became saved and accepted Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, God gave us his Holy Spirit. When we became saved, God completely changed our identity. And then he gives us his word, which we can hear his voice speaking to us and we can know him more. God claims us as his children and then tells us, now you are co-heirs to my kingdom. What else does he have to do? After you exchange Jesus and disciples, get into a boat and they sail away. It begins in verse 5. But Matthew only records the disciples reached the other side. Because Jesus is obviously in this conversation, we can know he was also in the boat. Maybe he was just asleep. He seemed to like to sleep in boats at times. It's not something you really need to record. But as they reach wherever they're heading, the disciples realized they had not planned appropriately, right? They had no bread. Now, the Gospel of Mark points out they did in fact have bread, but they only had one loaf. So this obviously wouldn't be enough to provide for at least 13 men. Disciples' lack of planning would have aggravated my daughter, Abby, completely. She is a huge planner. I'll admit it. She gets it from me. Camp is two months away. She already has her list of things to bring to camp ready to go. She is a planner. The disciples needed a planner. Someone to say, hey, we should probably take some provisions as we're traveling so we're prepared for wherever we're going. And once they arrive on shore and they realize what had happened, they go into this panic mode about a lack of bread. Now, as Jesus has done other times in ministry, he becomes aware of what they're talking about. He's aware of their worries and responds, to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, disciples didn't get it, did they? They think uh, he knows we don't have enough bread. They think he's talking about bread. Maybe it's because they got that one loaf that they had from the Pharisees and Sadducees. So this causes Jesus to bring up a little history lesson about some previous events that we've looked at. He, he reminds them, hey, do you not remember when I fed over 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish? And do you not remember there were leftovers? Do you not remember that I fed over 4,000 people with seven loaves and just a few fish, and again there were leftovers? What Mark does in Jesus asking the question, the disciples actually respond in the Gospel of Mark. He says, how many leftovers were there? Well, with the 5,000, we had 12 baskets full of leftovers. And what about with the 4,000? Well, the 4,000, we had seven baskets full of leftovers. So Jesus is trying to disciples to understand what, whatever they have, whatever resources is among them, it'll be sufficient. They were traveling with a bread and fish factory. You can make things come out of nowhere. But he gets on to his disciples the way he does in verse eight, verses 8 and 9. And the reason he gets on them the way he does is because they are acting like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
Disciples had witnessed the miracles firsthand. They had heard the teachings. They even have had times where they've got deeper explanation of some of his teachings. They had seen the demons cast out. They had witnessed the healings. Yet they weren't getting it. Question in verse 9, do you not yet perceive? It could be read as, do you not yet understand? Implying to them, just as Jesus implied to the Pharisees and Sadducees, can you not interpret the signs of the times? He was a fair level teacher. Same implication he gave to the Pharisees and scribes. Mark, he actually takes it a little bit further When Jesus speaks to his disciples, he asks them the question, are your hearts hardened? Because that's where the Pharisees and Sadducees were. They had hard hearts. They weren't receptive to the things of God. And disciples in this moment in time, in this time in the Gospels, they've been with Jesus for a good length of time. Yet they were acting like the men who had frequently opposed Jesus or wanted to test him. And so this brings us to our second danger, the danger of being with Jesus but not being changed by Jesus. The moment of our salvation, God sets us apart. Once we're saved, we're always saved, and God sets us apart. The biblical word for that is sanctification. It literally means to be set apart. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, it says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. You're being different. you living holy. This has been God's plan since he called Abraham out in Genesis 12. He set him apart from his family. When God redeemed Israel from Egypt in the book of Exodus, he brings them to a place and says, you know what? You are now set apart. You are to be holy because I, your God, am holy. The thing about sanctification, it isn't just at the moment of our salvation Sanctification is the ongoing work of our salvation. This is what Paul was led to write when he wrote to the Philippian believers, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's what he's led to write when he wrote to the Roman believers, but do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Jesus in this moment is dealing on disciples because they weren't being transformed by what they were witnessing. They were still being attached to the worries and the concerns of this world. And so he brings up the two miraculous feedings to wake them up and bring them to an understanding. Hey, guys, bread isn't the problem. If we've been with Jesus, meaning that we've been saved, we've accepted him As our Lord and Savior, He and He alone, we place our faith in His work. Whether it's been most of our life or for a short period of time, the problem comes if we're not allowing our relationship with God to change us, to set us apart. As believers, if we are acting like, thinking like, talking like, being like people of this world who don't have Jesus, that's the problem. And that's what Jesus is trying to wake his disciples up to. And I say that, I'm not trying to be mean. Here's the the truth. The scripture also tells us we're all going to stumble. We're all going to fall back into our sinful nature at times because it's easier. 
whether it's by word or deed or thought, the Bible points that out. But that is why salvation is a relationship with God, just as the disciples had a relationship with Jesus, to be changed. Going back to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word transform in the Greek is where we had our English word metamorphosis. And I think the greatest picture of metamorphosis comes from when a, a little caterpillar comes out of his cocoon as a butterfly. And they look completely different. They have completely different abilities. Once they can only crawl, now they can fly. Where Once they only had one or two colors on their fluffy little caterpillar bodies, now their wings are filled with God's beauty. They're different. They're transformed. And this is the image, not only of our salvation, but our living out sanctification. At our salvation, we are transformed into a new creation, and we are sanctified by God, but through the power of the Holy Spirit and our time with God, if we submit to his will and his word, God will continue to transform us into the beautiful creation he intended us to be. This was Jesus' mission with the disciples. Many of them began as fishermen. And how did he call them? Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. He wanted to transform them. But here, even later in the ministry of Jesus, the disciples are struggling to grasp the reality of what discipleship is meant to do in our life. And after a reminder about the feedings, Jesus again returns to the statement that he made initially there in verse 11, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's in this second time that Jesus makes this statement, the the disciples finally get it. (laughs) Guys, he's not talking about bread. We didn't mess up about bread. We messed up about something else, but not about bread. The implication, though, is of the Pharisees and Sadducees is their false teaching. Their deceptive teaching. The word beware, which we find numerous times throughout this passage, carries the meaning of being on our guard and to be aware of what we are listening to and allowing to impact our hearts. Leaven is used to put into flour. It makes the flour rise and gives the bread more volume. Biblically, it's a metaphor in the Bible, which means a small substance spreading through a larger substance. Paul used the metaphor in Galatians chapter 5. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's a fun saying. Galatians, Paul was writing to the believers there about false teachings, particularly legalism that had crept into the church, into the body of believers. It began to corrupt their faith. They were starting to believe this false teaching that maybe Christ sacrifice and resurrection wasn't enough. And we should be doing something on our end to guarantee it. They were becoming concerned about what they should do and not what Christ had already done for them. The third danger that Jesus points out is the danger of false teaching. Jesus warned disciples and us that just a little bit A false teaching can impact the entirety of the heart, just as leaven impacts the whole component of the flower. Sundays are kind of a crazy day. About a month or so ago, 
we were leaving church, heading home to eat, and I was going to prepare lunch for us. I'm typically the cook in the house. I won't say I always am, but typically. And that came about because Jamie, when we lived in Illinois, Jamie worked out of school. It was like 30, 45 minutes away. And I eventually got so aggravated because I would wait for her to come home and cook. And I thought, this is stupid. I can cook. <laughs> it may be hamburger helper, but I can do it. And I've learned to enjoy cooking. But anyway, on Sundays... Uh, we typically eat at home. By the time we get home from Sunday after church, we we're all pretty hungry, which makes Abby try to convince mommy and daddy we should go out to eat. <laughs> it'd be quicker, it'd be easier, but I already had the stuff ready. I already had the food bought. It was at home. We were going to have spaghetti. Spaghetti is a, a, a normal thing on a Sunday because it's pretty easy. You can do it pretty quick, and it makes enough quantity to feed my endless stomach of a son in the back. So we're having spaghetti. The one thing I always like to have with spaghetti is Parmesan cheese. Now, I'm not talking like shredded Parmesan out of a bag. I'm not talking like a chunk of Parmesan where I was shredded over my... I'm talking about the Parmesan that comes in the container. You know what I'm talking about? It's like already powdery, and, and so I just love to put it on. So when I finished cooking the spaghetti, and I got it all on the plates, and I put all the plates on the table, I laid the Parmesan on the table. So if anyone else in the family wanted to partake in Parmesan, they also could have it as well. So we sat down. And what we do in our house before we eat, almost always, I won't say we're 100% on it, but almost always we'll grab hands and we'll pray. And so I was going to lead the prayer. And I mentioned I was pretty hungry after church. Well, here's a little tip if you're ever concerned about praying before a meal. When you pray before a meal, you know when the prayer is going to end. And in that case, I knew I would be the first to grab the Parmesan. And so I said, amen. I was hungry. I reached out my hand where I had put the Parmesan. I picked it up, and I started pouring it on my spaghetti, but nothing was coming out, so I started pouring harder. And then is at that moment, I hear my loving daughter say, Daddy, would you like some Parmesan? What did I just pour in my spaghetti? It was salt. They're about the same size container. They're about the same height. They weighed about the same. And so I couldn't see it when I was pouring it. But when I ate it, I could taste it. And if you're one of those like, well, did you eat all your spaghetti? Yes. You want to know why? It was paid for. <laughs> I'd already bought it. But this is how false teachings work. If we're not on our guard, if we aren't staying aware and we aren't being careful, we may not see it. We may not even recognize it. And we may not realize how much it's impacting our heart. So how do we know something is a false teaching, a false theology? If it does not align with the word of God, the only truth, the absolute truth, then it's a false teaching. It's a false theology. And like my salt on my spaghetti, a false teaching that is accepted will change the flavor of our hearts. It won't taste right. I said before, there are a lot of things in Christian bookstores that do not align with the Word of God. There are things you're going to hear on the Christian radio which does not align with the Word of God. 
there are individuals in churches right now are standing behind a pulpit given the title of a pastor, and they are not preaching the word of God. False teachings are such a temptation for us because they don't align to the word of God, but they align with the mentality and the ways of the world, our old nature. Not every lifestyle is acceptable in the eyes of God. Not every financial decision made is according to the will of God. Not every word spoken behind some pulpits or in conferences aligned to the word of God. Jesus had to deal with false teaching throughout his entire ministry. He's wanting his disciples to wake up and understand that right now in their current world, the major source of false teaching were these individuals with religious titles. They looked the part. And so he's wanting them to wake up. If you look into Paul's ministry... A good portion of his letters, which Paul is credited for the majority of the New Testament, but a good portion of his letters in the Bible is directed to a church that's dealing with false teaching. You turn to the book of Revelation. If you just read of the seven churches in Revelation to which that letter is written to, you find that five of the seven churches had an issue with false teaching within the church. And if you would read through the rest of Revelation, you're going to find out this is Satan's scheme in the end. He is going to raise a false prophet and an antichrist who are going to deliver false teaching to lead people astray. It's that dangerous. False teaching, false theology, false doctrine is a very big deal. And Jesus is telling us we have to be on our guard against it. It doesn't matter if it sounds good, if it looks good, if it feels good, if it doesn't matter what God has spoken in his word, then danger, danger, danger. She may come to a point, well, how how do I know if what I'm believing is right or not? Well, first turn to the word of God. Then maybe just go to someone you trust who knows the word of God. Come ask me as your pastor. I'm not promising you I'll have the answer. Come to one of our elders and ask them. I'm not promising they'll have the answer. Come to one of some of our leadership teams and ask them. I'm not promising they have the answer. But here's the beauty of it. If you come with a question we don't have an answer, you know what we've immediately created? Bible study. Because we can find the answer together. Another question which some of you may be asking is, what is the truth you keep talking about in God's word? God loves you. He is for you. He wants you. He wants to claim you as his own and adopt you as his child. God's desire for each and every individual is to be in a relation with him that is only found in faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so if you want to avoid false teaching, the first step is to begin a relationship with God so the Holy Spirit can guide you and give you spiritual wisdom. That's why it's the gospel, because God is for us. He created you for a relationship with him. And it is your sin that is separating you from that relationship. And sometimes we think we can do enough good things that are just remove the sin problem, but that's not the case. That was a lot of false teaching that Paul had to deal with. 
That's why Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life according to God's standards, died on a cross, and rose from the grave three days later so that we could be forgiven for our sins, be given the gift of eternal life in heaven, be given the Holy Spirit, be claimed by God, known by him, and yet to know him more. If you're here this morning, you've yet to make that step of faith. It's called a confession of faith. But you believe that to be true in your heart. The Bible says you must confess it with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And what that means is you must make it publicly known. So we come to this time of invitation. If you know that is you, I'm going to invite you to come down. You can come straight to me. You can come sit in the front row. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate together. It'd be awesome. But church, let's make sure we are people of the word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness. Thank you. Love us so much that you warn us about what to be aware of. And Father, there's someone here this morning that they know in their heart they have yet to accept you as their Lord and Savior. They've yet to find forgiveness for their sins and be given the gift of eternal life. I pray your spirit comes upon them. You would open their eyes, give them ears to hear. And they would respond. Thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to be together once again in your name. Pray that your will and kingdom would continue to be done in this time of response. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.